Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. Thank you, as always, for being with us for our show today. I have to tell you, I've been looking forward to this show since our guest agreed that she would be on, which she just told me a few minutes ago she did in a moment of weakness. I'm glad I caught her in that moment. I'm going to talk today about one of the truly great uh, inspirational leaders in, uh, I think, in America, uh, Shirley Franklin. Certainly her impact on the city of Atlanta and beyond has been enormous over the years. And and one of the reasons that, there are a couple reasons I wanted to talk to her, Um, Number one, um, at a time when so much of our politics has become transactional, in which at least one of the parties has uh, built its base around uh, fear, uh, anger, recrimination, um, in which politicians find it increasingly difficult to tell their constituents the truth for fear they'll be thrown out of office, Shirley Franklin, who became the 58th mayor of Atlanta back in 2002, was the first woman mayor of Atlanta and the first female a black mayor in a major southern city, had to face extraordinary obstacles and came through them by telling the people the truth, hitting them with hard facts, and asking them to be part of the solutions. So there's that aspect of Shirley Franklin. She is also a great lover of the arts, She was a major player in the 1996 Olympics, and she learned at the foot of two other great leaders, uh, Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young. So for all those reasons and more, Shirley Franklin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. And and I did uh, say yes in a moment of weakness. I've shied away (laughs) from such um, conversations for a few years now. Well, I want to talk to you about your life and career, and um, I want to start uh, by going back to your earlier days. Uh, you grew up, uh, you're like me, you grew up in the North, you're in your case, Philadelphia, I grew up in Chicago, we're both transplants uh, to the South, um, but I want to talk about you in Philadelphia. You have said that your inspiration uh, as you were growing up was from the church, especially preacher's sermons. Uh, you said the message from the preacher was clear. We are called to do God's work on earth. And um, you said that Reverend Jesse Anderson, I assume your minister in Philadelphia, sparked your interest in social and economic justice for people of color, the poor, and the oppressed around the world, and that he inspired you to care about others all the time, not just when it is convenient or easy to do. That's Quite a message, Shirley. Well, it's also very true. He was, uh, I grew up in the Episcopal Church, uh, the church founded by Absalom Jones, um, who left the Methodist Church with uh, Richard Allen, who founded the AMEs that um, we often talk about. Uh, but um, Reverend 
uh, Anderson was very clear um, in every sermon that I remember that our our work was the work the work of God today, and that we were to understand that in our lives and to live that in our lives. Now, I don't know that he realized that he was saying that he was having that impact on me at seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. You know, as a young woman, um, but I've lived with those messages, um, and I've I've had the pleasure of Bishop um, Wright of the Episcopal Church in North Georgia. Actually, his mentor was the eldest son of Reverend Anderson. So when I Uh, it's been interesting when I when he came to Georgia and I met him for the first time, I told him about growing up in that church. And um, one of the things that I said to him is that every radical idea I have, I learned in church. Every <laughs> and he, he I've seen him recently and he mentioned to me, he said, I use that surely. I mean, the truth of the the truth is that I. I came to realize that it is not for me to judge other people. It is for me to be a part of solutions if there are problems, but not to be the judge. So I try very hard not to be judgmental. Um, And I think that served you well in your tenure as mayor and beyond. Let me talk about another thing uh, that you had in your life growing up and that you've uh, said uh, at one point. You, you said, quote, there was lots of discussions about politics at your family dinners. And here's a quote. My father and grandfather were both Republicans. They would say Lincoln Republicans. My mother and grandmother were Democrats. So every Sunday dinner was a debate. I came to understand that good people can be involved in politics and in the debate of public policy and issues regardless of party. Another important lesson. No, it was a really important lesson, and it's proven to be so important in this last 10 or 15 years. Um, my father and and my father and grandfather were active in Republican politics, not just voting or registered Republicans. Uh, my grandfather, who had a third grade education, was a, a block captain for the Republican Party and got to know all the voters. And my father ultimately was a candidate on the Republican ticket for a judgeship in in Pennsylvania. My grandmother, uh, my father's mother and uh, my mother were Adelaide Stevenson uh, Democrats. Uh, and they were much more interested in the social issues uh, and in those days, I really was not asked an opinion. I was there to listen. And I don't think I ever offered an opinion, but I ultimately uh, chose to be like my grandmother and my mother, a Democrat, um, more focused on kind of the big tent politics as opposed to small government. Or, I mean, that's an overstatement of what either is. But uh, I I chose early. And I could not register to vote until 21. Uh, many people don't realize mm-hmm. that, but uh, it was not until uh, past my 18th year that I was able to vet- register at, at 21 in Pennsylvania. So what was the first election you voted in? Who So in the, you, you, what was the first <laughs> presidential election you were able to vote in? 
Well, I couldn't vote in the Kennedy. I, I might as well have voted in the Kennedy election because I was actively engaged in every encounter uh, advocating for John F. Kennedy. Um, but I was only 15 years old. So it was a little while longer. And the truth of the matter is um, I wasn't that interested in voting for any of the candidates. I, um, I, I will admit here that I was more an independent then. Um, I, I looked at the independent candidates much more than I did the party candidates in my early years. So I let's put politics aside. In, Go let ahead. Me, let me say, I was actively involved in political campaigns, but mostly nonpartisan um, mm. as a young adult and graduate school um, and much more interested in the issues. So I was much more a cause-related um, activist than I was a party activist. All that said, um, and despite the fact that obviously you had an extraordinary career in public service, um, your greatest love, I think I'm safe in saying, when you were a little girl, was in the dance. You wanted to be a dancer. <laughs> I wanted to not just be a dancer, but a prima ballerina. I wanted to be in front and center and the main part of the program uh, for ballet. And so I studied dance uh, from, oh, I don't know, four or five years old until I went to college. And um, I really wanted to be a dancer. And my mother and father encouraged me to find another love because it was very hard to imagine in 19, early 1963. Uh, that an African-American woman or actually any woman could make a, a career of being a dancer. And it, yeah. I, I, they viewed it as uh, something that wasn't really possible. I wouldn't be able to support myself. And since we had modest income, they thought that I needed to be in a career where I could actually earn a living and pay my own bills, et cetera. Of course, things if have you... changed since then. Since Things have changed since then. And there are many young people who are finding um, careers and are able to earn a living in the arts. And for that, I'm very thankful for them. And it's better for the, the country. Do you ever, uh, I, you know, I, early in my life, I thought I'd be an actor and loved acting um, and then didn't realize it was just the wrong thing for me, among other reasons, because I really wasn't all that good. Um, and there are still times in my life when I go see a play and I think, oh, I wish I were up there on that stage. Do you ever think to yourself, oh, I wish I could have pursued that career in dance? I still dance in my head. I mean, I don't <laughs> have to go anywhere. I'm still a dancer in my head. Um, and um, uh, even when I work out in the gym and um, my trainer will say, well, how do you pick up on technique so easily? And it all comes back from learning technique in dance and ballet early in life. And it's not that I'm very good at it, but I actually can do all of the steps and remember all the steps and put them together. Um, so I dance in my head. My children don't think I'm a particularly good dancer, but that really doesn't matter to me because I don't dance for anyone else. I dance for my own <laughs> pleasure and my own soul. Shirley Franklin, at this stage of her life, can still do the five basic positions of ballet, is what you're telling <laughs> us. <laughs> let's, let's, let's move forward a little bit. Um, you went off to college. You went to Howard. And um, I, I, I'm, 
tell me a little bit because we we talk a lot these days about HBCUs. Um, why is going to a historically black college university so significant? Why did it matter to you? Well, it it was not my choice. Um, I wanted to go to a, mm. a school in um, uh, the Midwest, of course, Earlham. Um, I was very interested in the peace movement. I was interested in the non-military movement as a young person. And I um, had really thought that I would go to a Quaker school. Um, mm. And my mother, and mostly my mother, but also my father, insisted that I um, go to Howard University, their their college. And the truth of the matter is they didn't, there was no discussion about it. I mean, this is 1960, 61, 62. And they said, this is what you're going to do. My mother's position was, you're going here because I have family in this town. And it is important for you to be grounded in the history of African-Americans as a part of American history. And you will get that best at Howard University and at an HBCU. My father's recommendation was that, uh, well, his suggestion was that I go to Howard and then if I wanted to go um, to a research institution or to a larger or majority white institution, I could do that in graduate school and professional school. And he felt mm. that there was no question that I needed to get an advanced degree. So I ended up at Howard largely because my family directed me there. Now, I say to young people today, you didn't ask me this question, um, when we're talking about what it is they might want to do or what they're thinking about, I often ask them what their parents or closest adult advisors or guardians suggest. And they're always surprised because they wanted, some, some want to be, to choose for themselves. And I explain that there are key things, key times in my life that following the advice of my parents or a trusted adult um, resulting in a much better outcome than I could have understood mm. or even imagined at the time. Howard University is one. And the second is running for mayor because I did not imagine myself running for office, but several trusted adults, Andrew Young, Maynard Jackson, Tom Cousins, um, a number of women, Ingrid Saunders Jones, and Maria Saporta, Cynthia Tucker, these were trusted adults who came to me and said, we think you need to run. And that was foreign to me. I had never even considered running. Um, and I was well into my 50s. Uh, when this conversation took place. So that's that's not your question, but that's how I ended up at Howard, and that's how I ended up running for mayor. Well, I think that's important. I, I do want to talk about your, your uh, tenure as mayor in a couple minutes. I do think it's interesting that in a, a speech uh, at the Kennedy Library, and we'll talk about why you were there, uh, you called yourself an accidental politician, an unintentional mayor. You were, I think, 55 when you uh, became a mayor in 2002, right? I was definitely 55, and when I left, I was 105. <laughs> um, so I, 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 before we get to that, though, you one of the things that's so interesting about you, and it's another thing that we share in common, um, we both— 
watched the civil rights movement from a distance in the earlier days. We were both up north watching what was happening in the south. But you did something really powerful. In August of 1963, the civil rights movement essentially came to you. You and your mother were at the March on Washington, and you've talked about the profound impact it had on you to see the hundreds of thousands of people and to see Martin Luther King Jr. give his I Have a Dream speech. No, there's no question about it. I was uh, going into the second year. I, I went to college in in January or February of 1963 as a freshman. So I was going into my second semester of freshman semester. And I was already in school. And my mother and her sisters and my cousins uh, decided they were going to all come to Washington and march. Well, my plan was to go with my friends, um, which would probably have meant that I would not have stayed the entire time. But because I was with my family, I was there for the entire time. I was most excited about the opportunity to see John Lewis because I, at Howard, I had met several of the founders of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and, um, and, and I knew them fairly well, and I wanted, to, I wanted to hear what their leader, who was in his 20s, as opposed to slight, you know, in their 30s, which seemed older at the time, <laughs> uh, had to say. And there was some controversy about what he would say and how, um, how he would say it. But obviously, in hindsight, it was the combination of, well, it was a combination of a number of things. This was a fully integrated march. There is this perception that it was only black people and it was only um, one kind, one group, whether it was labor or faith leaders. It was fully integrated with people from all walks of life. Um, in addition to that, there were many speakers, I mean, who, who, who came forward and um, it was really a celebration and a call to action. And then of course, you know, I remember being there. I mean, I'm 78 now and I remember being there. I can, I can take my mind and feelings back to that moment and understanding the history that was being made. Um, and that did have a great impact on me because those things that you remember are things that you can always call on as touchstones and uh, inspiration. Um, they give you strength. They give you courage, courage to do the hard things yourself. Imagine how hard that was for John Lewis yeah. in his 20s um, to be on the stage with Martin Luther King and Roy Wilkins and uh, Whitney Young and all those other folks. I mean, that was really hard to do. And they didn't have all of the answers. They had a lot of the questions. Um, and they had a sense of where they wanted to go. But I'm not sure that they had a fully developed plan. And that took a lot of courage. And I draw, and I have drawn on um, the feelings that I had that day when I was faced with tough issues in my life, whether personal or professional. So um, I want to 
I, I, I've said on this show on any number of occasions, uh, and you had a similar experience, watching the civil rights movement from afar. You go to the March on Washington to see, you're excited to see John Lewis. Uh, you came south, and we'll talk about why you came south in a minute, and suddenly people like John Lewis, people like Andrew Young, these are people we both watched from the distance of our homes in the north, and suddenly we're here and we're getting to know them personally. What an extraordinary thing that was for me as a journalist, and it must have been incredibly powerful for you. I think it's, I, well, I, that is one of the real, um, uh, that's unique and special about being in a community that was small enough. Um, for you to get and and big enough, big enough for them to actually live here and be a part of the community and small enough for you to get to know them uh, yeah. intimately, to see them in multiple um, settings and to have them know you um, and um, and to be a part of of the movement in its next phase, so to speak. Uh, in, yeah. in, the, in the implementation of the Voting Rights Act, in the implementation of the Civil Rights Act, uh, and to know their stories and then to know them personally or to be able to see them um, in person, I mean, you can't replace that. That's like, li that's living history. Yeah. And it's, when I moved to it. I'm, I'm, I wasn't making history, but I was in the midst of it. And you, you, when you I can't... You can't you can't explain that to anyone really, because you learn so much by just observing how they behave, what they say, how they move, um, where they go, what causes they take up, and we do, and you don't have to wait uh, for the media to tell you about it. <laughs> um, I pop I. We're sort of, we talked over each other a couple of times, and I think our listeners know that we're not in the studio together, so sometimes that happens, and I apologize to you for that, Shirley. I was going to tell you a very quick story. I moved to Atlanta in um, the fall of 1983. Andrew Young, of course, was mayor at that time. I don't remember why we were able to get together, but one of the first things that I remember about meeting Andy Young is that he took me, he picked me up somewhere downtown in his car and wanted me to see the neighborhoods on the southwest side of Atlanta. Because he said, if you're going to be a journalist here, you need to understand it's not all about the white north side. Look at these communities in the southwest. And at one point, he actually tried to encourage me to buy a house down there. But that was really the kind of person we both know Andy Young could be. And he drove himself as mayor. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, he's the only mayor that I know in recent years, the last 50 years, maybe 40 years, that actually drove himself most days. Um, the rest of us were driven, but he, the, 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 the police would drive behind him yeah. <laughs> on his trips. But, but that is the kind of place Atlanta was then and seeks to be now. I mean, personable, welcoming. Shirley Franklin, uh, I've got to get to a break. When we come back, I do want to talk about your, uh, especially your first term as mayor and the extraordinary challenges you faced and how, frankly, you, uh, you 
took them on with a kind of courage that um, is not unfortunately common as uh, these days in politics. We'll do that and much more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're talking today to Shirley Franklin, one of the really significant thought leaders in the state of Georgia and well beyond the 58th mayor of the city of Atlanta, a leader in the Olympics, uh, a great champion of the arts, and so much more. Um, Shirley, um, you you ran for mayor reluctantly because both Maynard Jackson and Andrew Young, who you had worked for, of course, in their administrations, said you had to do it. You really needed to do it. Um, The city was in dire straits when you were surprisingly elected. I happened to be assigned to cover your election headquarters that night, and so I was with you in the crowd when people were shocked to realize you had become mayor. Uh, there's no question. I um, I was not the favorite candidate, even though I had very strong support from Maynard and Andy, Andy, Andy Young, Maynard Jackson, Roy Barnes, John Lewis. But because I'd never run for office before, um, the electorate was rightly skeptical. So I barely won. I won with Adderall, which is a record, by the way. Um, yep. And I, I won with 51% of the vote, you know, 51, uh, 50.01% of the vote. So very slim margin, 81 votes out of 84,000. And um, I really ran, once I decided to run, and Maynard and Maynard really kind of sealed it in a way, he took me to lunch and, and said, look, if you're not going to run, you need to get out of the way. You need to stop playing around. Um, and people ask me, why, did I, why am I, did I so tough? I mean, why, why was I able to take kind of take the punches that come with public life. And I said, well, because I had to take the punches from Maynard and Andy and Roy and David and other people. <laughs> they never um, treated me as if I was soft or easy. And that caused, once I decided to run, my expectation was that I would not win, but that I would be able to disc the issues that mattered to me. And integrity honesty, transparency, uh, innovation were among the things I cared about as just principles of values. And I enjoyed meeting people when I was running and learning more about both their issues and concerns and aspirations, but also learning more about the history of Atlanta because people would tell me all sorts of stories. I want to talk um, in a minute I did about, not about- win. And no one, 
And no one expected me to win that night. No one. So all of the consultants uh, said I would go off. We were we were all astonished covering you that night as the numbers came in and it became well, there's gonna be a runoff. Well, what and all of a sudden there was no runoff, which was extraordinary. I want to talk about the challenges you faced in a moment. But I also want to play for uh, uh, for our listeners uh, a little bit of your uh, 1992 uh, accept uh, uh, 2002 rather acceptance speech because I think it's important and says a lot about who you are uh, in your life. Um, you uh, talk about um, the challenges that are ahead of you. You talk about the people who have guided you, who've been important to your life. Uh, some of the inspirations, and then you say this. It is an honor because I stand on the shoulders of all the great leaders this city has produced. But it is also an honor because I proudly represent all of the women who have toiled in the fields, worked in the kitchens, fought for our rights, and challenged our society. Thank you. Thank you. These women have worked to ensure a better life for all our families. You have always been a great champion of uh, women and their their profound abilities to be leaders in the community as well as the heads of their households and as they uh, bring their families together. Well, I've been um, a feminist since I was 13. I went to an all-girls public high school taught by all female teachers, taught uh, with leadership school. There were no men leading anything in my high school from the time I was 13. And one of the messages that came from that experience was that women were equal, are equal, have been equal, and needed to stand up for each other and to stand up for themselves in every opportunity that they were given. And they needed to seize several opportunities. Um, you know, one thing we don't talk about is I worked in Shirley Chisholm's um, office in uh, Congress when I was in college. So, I mean, it was um, that, that those statements are probably the most closely aligned with who I am than anything else I said in that speech. I believe that to my bones, through my blood forever and ever. And I think it is important for us as a society and a world to acknowledge the contributions of women historically and, and to acknowledge them now and into the future. Um, it, it was, it, I, I think the fact, the way you talked about the women who work in the household, not, not just pe- women who had been like a Shirley Chisholm in public life and had, had reached a certain level of acclaim. And of course, Shirley Chisholm, first um, uh, woman in, to run for president in a major uh, political party. I think the very first when she ran for president in 1972, right? 
Yes. I, I would right, say, can I, can I talk a little bit about that, those statements? Several, several people had worked with me on writing that speech. Mike Ross, Gene Duffy, Billy Linville. And we were having our final session on the speech. And that sentiment was not in the speech. And I proposed that we put it in and write it right then. And there was a lot of controversy in that conversation as to whether it was pandering um, and whether it would be seen as insincere. And it was the one thing that I insisted be in the speech. And it turns out that it is the one thing that people remember about the speech. It was very authentic. There was no uh, 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 sense at all in which it was pandering in any way. All right, let's talk, though. Here you go. You're in office. You learn pretty quickly. Some of it you knew. Uh, you've quoted John F. Kennedy at one point as saying, when we got into office as president, the thing that surprised me most was to find that things were just as bad as we'd been uh, uh, saying they were and worse. <laughs> Um, you ended up coming into office with an 82, I think, million dollar budget deficit, something like 20 percent deficit. You were under the city was under a federal order to repair its dilapidated and failing sewer system, which was a three billion dollar project. And the fact of the matter is that whether you wanted to be the mayor represented for advancing the arts, advancing social justice, all of the things that do matter to you, you had to roll up your sleeves and get to work on turning around the fiscal issues that the city faced and figuring out a way to come up with $3 billion to uh, respond to the federal order and create a clean water Atlanta. Well, I mean, you've named a couple of the things. We also had a very high crime rate. At the time, one of the highest in the country, um, there was, um, I mean, there, there was, it was time for a change. People wanted a change. They wanted a fresh approach. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's just very challenging to actually even help to lead the change is challenging. So um, I'd been in government for 13 years with Andrew Young and Mayor Jackson, so I knew that there were issues with city. How much it was and how hard it was was really never the issue with me. The issue was could I gain the public trust to tackle the issues in a way that would be that where the solutions would be sustainable over time. I I really had a perspective and still have a perspective that it's better to do the hardest things than to start with the easiest things. And I had to convince the public that the hardest things were worth the time and effort, money, resources, et cetera. And um, so I had to earn that trust every day. And that was really the hardest thing, earning the trust, keeping the trust, not violating the trust. Many people say, I want to be transparent in my leadership. And that works until there's something they don't want to talk about. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's really being transparent regardless of whether it's something that's favorable to you 
or consistent with your point of view or political uh, philosophy. So I, um, I, I wasn't afraid of the issues. I was most concerned about how do you gain and maintain public trust and what are the elements of that? And I was constantly testing that. So you had, first of all, you raised the sales tax. What did you raise the sales tax significantly uh, and then had to eventually raise the property tax as well? Two very risky moves uh, for an elected official. You laid off uh, city workers and you did all of it by insisting that if you told people the truth and said you must share in this responsibility, um, you could you could gain their trust as long as you were clear with them. I want to play one quick soundbite. You went when it came to the water issue, which was an enormous. You you've often joked about the fact. I hoped I'd be the arts mayor. I ended up being the sewer mayor. You did an appearance at the Atlanta <laughs> Press Club. In, in which you said there were so many people who were skeptical about how Atlanta would ever ever be able to uh, uh, fix its sewers, $3 billion. You assumed, like many people did, what was going to happen was the courts were going to turn over the water system to the feds. But here's what you told the press club about all that. But By the way, at that point in that speech, you went on to say you think it was that same spirit of cooperation and can-do uh, approach to problems that uh, were, were responsible for your being able to bring together a coalition to raise 30 plus million dollars to buy the King Papers, which now reside at the Center for Civil and Human Rights, which you under your leadership were responsible for building. But let's talk first about you. You, you took on these unbelievably hard issues, told the truth, made people pay more money in the city, laid people off in in. And in your election uh, in 2006, you won by 90% plus, 95, uh, 2005. You won 90 plus percent of the vote, whites, blacks, Hispanics. Shirley Franklin, how does that happen after the way in which you have made people pay for all of the problems that they had to deal with? How did you do this? I have no idea. I mean, I have no idea. I um, it's it's not the typical <laughs> approach to popularity to lay people off in your first six weeks and to raise property taxes forty two percent. And I had several U.S. senators ask me if I was really a Democrat. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> they um, but somehow people wanted to believe in. They wanted to believe that Atlanta could be great. They believed it, but they wanted to see it. Maybe that's the way to say it. And some of the issues that we took on, like water. I mean, just like this is 2002 we're talking about, 2003. Fast forward to 2023, and other cities are now grappling with very serious water issues and clean water issues and infrastructure issues. So. Um, you know, my, my prescription, my formula is do the hard things, tell the hard things, prove that you can do them, be honest about it. And then other people will help you do some of the easier things. R raising the money for the King Papers, we did in 11, uh, we did in 11 days, raised uh, enough money 
well, guarantees of enough money to get the papers in 11 days. And we don't, I mean, we really only had 14 days to do it in. So yeah. in, in some ways, if we had not taken on those other hard issues, I doubt we would have been able to do that. I mean, I had one friend say to me, um, he said, you know, I'm not going to bet against you, Shirley. If you say you can do something and we can do it, I'm not betting against you. You may not be able to do it, but I'm not putting my money on you failing. Um, I've got to get to a break, but before I do, I want to make sure that everybody knows out there that in 2005, the John F. Kennedy Library uh, awarded you the uh, profile, one of their Profiles in Courage awards, and here's just a bit of what they said. Franklin's blunt insistence upon fiscal solvency and her unblinking acceptance of the political risks of her decisions were instead met with cheers. Her popularity soared. People want someone who will just tell it like it is, Franklin said in a media interview. This is a commodity that is so much more rare in politics today, and it's one of the things that we here on my show uh, uh, honor you for when we talk about you uh, frequently on Political Rewind. i got to get to a final break. Back with more in a moment. Shirley Franklin, those of us who were here in Atlanta on the day that the then head of the International Olympic Committee said Atlanta is the winner of the 1996 Games were astonished. Nobody expected it. Nobody internationally expected it. I don't think people in Georgia really thought it would happen, but it did. And, of course, one of your um, mentors and the man you worked for closely, Andrew Young, uh, was a major player in that, but you had a role going forward in the Olympics. Talk about what your Olympic experience meant to you. Great time. Um, um, working with Billy Payne and A.D. Frazier and Charlie Battle and Ginger Watkins. I mean, they had this big dream, and I actually didn't think we'd win the Olympics, but when we did and they asked me to join, I was uh, among the, the, the people who worked on uh, state affairs and local affairs, working at the community level, um, working in the uh, helping to develop the minority and female business plan that was hugely successful, uh, as well as um, uh, working on um, the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies. I I cherish that time because in a very in, in less than five years. Atlanta was able to pull together some of the greatest games ever held. Ironically, um, you, of course, in 96, you were still years away from the election as mayor. But your predecessor during the Olympics um, began to run uh, into some of the controversies that ended up, unfortunately, bringing down Bill Campbell, um, who went to prison. Uh, uh, it, and part of that, we, we saw the way in which he kind of sold uh, vendors on a plan to have all these Olympic uh, little stands all over the city. There was a lot of controversy about that. And then Campbell ran into more serious legal problems. And I think what's the reason I even bring that up now is because as soon as you became mayor, given the Campbell issues, you said, we have got to have a new ethics standard and code for the city of Atlanta. And you stuck to that and made it happen. 
well, I mean, the public was really demanding more uh, accountability. And whether that was related to uh, Mayor Campbell or Bill and what was going on then, I think we were just moving more to a higher level of accountability. And they wanted to know the, the ins and outs. They wanted to know the reasons people were voting for things. So uh, we put together a committee. Stacey Abrams was on the committee, Janetta Cole, um, uh, Darth Yates, and others to actually come up with a the first um, major ethics uh, policy for the city of Atlanta to ensure that the bid process, the public bid process, was fair, um, uh, there was a level playing field, and that there was not so-called insider um, um, participation and 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 even corruption. Now, does that do you, do you eliminate uh, the problems completely? No, but you at least recognize them. You train people, you hold people accountable, and you hold yourself accountable, which is equally important. I mean, <laughs> sometimes the speed of the captain is the speed of the crew, so you have to hold yourself accountable as well. Uh, by the way, I, I I don't want to forget, as long as you talk about accountability, when you made all these major cuts that we talked about in terms of the budget, that included a huge salary reduction you took as mayor of Atlanta. You had to live off your savings because the cut that you took for your own uh, salary was uh, uh, significant. I, I don't want to go without pointing out how you personally sacrificed when we talked about that a few minutes ago. Um, and you are, Why are the you arts? Are, go ahead. You are a- you are reminding me of all the painful things that happened. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about a, a brighter side of things. You have always been a, a, a wonderful advocate for the arts, for dance, for theater. Um, I remember, you may not recall this, but uh, we both know, uh, people on this show have heard me talk about Kenny Leon frequently, he and my wife, Janice Schaefer, Schaefer are very close friends. Um, I've won him through marriage, too, as a friend. I remember a day when we were in New York City, Janice and I, at a matinee of Kenny's first Broadway show, Raisin in the Sun, with Audra McDonald and P. Diddy. Uh, and who shows up at that matinee? Shirley Franklin. Oh, absolutely. I caught, I caught a train for—I was at a conference in Washington, D.C., and a friend called and said, I can get tickets if you can come tomorrow. And I told the conference, I was sorry, I had to leave and go uh, to see Kenny's show. I mean, he's a wonderful, I mean, he's so creative. He's committed uh, to telling the stories, American stories, African-American stories. Um, He's got a heart, he's got a a heart of gold. uh, And I'm so, I'm so thrilled that he is, his career has soared. And I think Atlanta helped to feed that career early on. Absolutely. I mean, he still makes his home here. He was the artistic director of the Alliance Theater before he went off to do all of the work he does on Broadway. Why are the arts so important, Shirley Franklin? Well, artists, artists see the world that most of us don't see. They see the empty spaces as full of life and energy. They help to define who we are, and they help to inspire us uh, to think differently, to be different, to understand difference. Um, music, the arts connect people all over the world. I was in a, uh, a school 
in uh, India um, that was under was built into the floor of the ocean. Um, I won't explain all of that right now. With children who spoke no English at all, and the interpreter was explaining what the children were learning, et cetera. And I was with Helene Gale at the time, and we asked the teacher if the children could sing. And from the moment they opened their voices, opened their mouths to sing, we were all connected. The music, mm. the beauty, the language. We didn't understand the words, but we understood the melody and melody and the harmony uh, and the passion and feelings that they were putting into the music. Um, arts are just a way to connect people across the ages and across every spectrum. Um. And, and you did, as I said a little while ago, thought you thought you had hoped that the arts were going to become an important part of what you accomplished. And, of course, uh, so many of the problems uh, prevented that from happening the way you wanted it to. But Atlanta's art community continues to thrive, and so does much of the arts across the state. Yes? Absolutely. I mean, we're much more diverse now. We're more accessible. We have community arts. We have fine arts. We have... Um, contemporary arts, we have emerging artists. The whole idea is to support the artists, not just the institutions, because the institutions can can only present what the artists are creating. So uh, I, w I would hope that we would actually include the arts more in our education. There is a direct relationship between the arts and, uh, and the uh, of child's ability to learn um and to express themselves so this doesn't have to be uh I mean, you don't have to be fully disciplined in this this is a question of right. how do you express yourself creatively um and i've taken classes um even when i was mayor i took a two a two-day class on how to how to tap into my own creativity of course shirley dad, franklin I got to interrupt. I'm so sorry to do this, but we are completely out of time. And I can't let this uh, uh, end without telling you how grateful I am that you did the show today. So I apologize for interrupting. But Shirley, what a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much. And thank you for this wonderful season um, with Political Rewind. I love it. <laughs> thank you, Shirley Franklin. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and yes, be good to one another. Bye, everybody.